welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Jim Wagner. Jim is the CEO of the Contract Network, which is a Tusk Ventures portfolio company. We just led their seed round, and we're really excited to do it. So, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Bradley. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, so let's quickly, because you have like very specific expertise in the space. I want to establish it, so then we start talking about the company itself, and then AI more broadly. Everyone knows that you know what you're talking about, which in the world of AI is generally not the case. So give us a quick kind of background of both SEAL software and then your work at DocuSign. Yeah, so very quickly, very quickly, I've been working in AI and specifically AI in the legal space for almost 20 years now. It's pretty amazing. Um, most recently, I served as vice president of Agreement Cloud Strategy at DocuSign. I joined DocuSign in that role when they acquired our company called Seal Software, we were the market leader in using AI to analyze contracts. Um, and that business, um, we really were very fortunate. We worked with an absolute who's who uh, globally, uh, analyzing large portfolios of agreements for many of the world's largest companies. So when did that aha moment kind of hit for the contract network? And, and how would you sort of succinctly define the company for the audience? Wow, that's a great question. So it hit uh, when we were working with many of the most respected brands on the planet. And we, at SEAL, we were trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And that is, is we were going in and looking at very, very large portfolios of signed agreements. And we were trying to figure out what they said. Well, that's all well and good. But why couldn't we fix this from the outset? Why wouldn't you know a global brand like X be able to know what their payment terms were before they signed an agreement and be able to tie that directly into their ERP or CRM, et cetera? And so we were spending all this time and effort trying to go in after the fact and figure out what contract said. And it was just sort of like this, aha, wouldn't it be better if we knew beforehand? But the second thing, Bradley, was if you drew up a heat map of the cost, risk, time pressure, all of these things in the contract lifecycle, there's one sort of ultimate moment where that heat map just absolutely bursts. And that's during the negotiation. You gotta get it done. It's the highest risk moment. It's time sensitive. Your chief revenue officer, your CEO, whomever wants that deal done. And it's certainly where the biggest amount of the cost is. And none of the work that we were doing or the work that anyone else was doing in the AI and contracting space was targeted at addressing this biggest pain point. And so those were the two uh, primary uh, sort of motivations or aha moments for the contract network. And so really quickly, what yeah. we do, we're an AI powered collaboration platform that's gonna enable two or more parties to get to an agreement much faster. And the second piece of it is a TCN agreement that the contract network TCN is gonna be data from the very first draft. So you're gonna understand your compliance requirements, your obligations, your timing, all of those things are all gonna be recorded from the very, very first draft of the agreement. So you're not gonna to have to go try to put Humpty Dumpty together after you sign a TCN agreement. And so ultimately, the the kind of time savings and kind of intellectual savings that come from TCN are really the product of what? Uh, are, are the are the product of, of of what? Like, how would you define what what makes this such, sort of, such a good product for you know general counsels and, and companies to wanna to have? 
Right. I mean, general counsel and executives as a whole have been starved for a platform or a mechanism to truly accelerate the timeline to get deals done. They just want speed. I mean, fast businesses win. COVID proved that every McKinsey, Harvard Business Review study you see, fast businesses win. And so what we're doing is, is we are really focused on developing a platform that says, how do we promote speed? From that, you'll get your cost savings. Again, you'll get your compliance. You'll get all these different pieces. But it's really about speed, Bradley, mm-hmm. and eliminating waste in the negotiation process. Yeah. So you have this aha moment. Clearly, you have 20 years in, in this specific sector. You realize this thing. What's the process like from like, oh, someone should do this to we're doing it? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I I got very lucky. I was speaking to a venture firm, um, even you know at the earliest stage, talking to them about the notion of of what I was going to build. And one of them raised their hand and said, "Well, hey, wait a second. Do you know Bill Murphy, the the CTO at Blackstone? Because he and we were just speaking, and he said he wanted to build this, or someone should build this. So." So the first piece of, of making this happen was actually that that magical magical connection where Bill and I came together uh, as co-founders of the product. The second piece of it is really mapping out and sort of balancing out that founder's ego and pride and subject matter expertise around what you see as a problem and how you think you can solve it, but also speaking to a lot of people to say, one, hey, is this genuinely a, a problem that you would be interested, that you would be open to exploring an alternative for? And the second piece of it is, how should that product work? Like we have some ideas, but what would make it most valuable to you? From there, once you go through that founder moment where you say, I, you know, I deeply understand this problem and I'm convinced that it's something that I want to put my heart and soul, time, money into and you go through at least some level of validation around it, it's off to the races. And that's where you really begin to think about, we're not just building this to solve a one-off problem. We're trying to build something that will is built to last. Bill was the co-founder of Capital IQ, Cap IQ that many folks know. And he'll tell you that the code he built and that the data model that he built on day one is still absolutely in place today. And so Bradley, when we talk about getting off and running, the first piece that we really put in place was, what's the underlying architecture? What's the underlying data model? How can we know that what we're building will really, really scale in the long run? And from there, you then go out and you build out your application that sits on top of it. So uh, another thing I should mention is, in addition to all those other things, Bill Murphy was Jordan's boss at Blackstone, which is ultimately how we met you. Uh, so fortuitous in a lot of different ways. So feels like there's a lot of debate over what is AI a sort of category or is it a tool? Is it a product or is it something that every tech company should at least be thinking about using? What's your thought on that generally? And then how would you answer the question of is TCN an AI company or is it kind of a, a legal fintech company that uses AI? Yeah. So I'm going to tackle I'm going to tackle the 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 latter sure. first, and that is is you nailed it. We are a collaboration platform focused on accelerating contracts and making it easier to manage those. And we are an application, and we are an we are an AI enabled application. But you know our core our, our core thesis is fintech 
healthcare and life sciences, state and local government, they all have big, big problems in terms of how long it takes to enter into an agreement and how complicated it is to manage from a compliance perspective. That's what we are. That's who we do. We're solving a problem. We're building a platform for these people to come to. Now then, what is AI and is it a product? You know, for certainly if you're Anthropic or if you're OpenAI or many other companies, AI is, is the product. Um, but I think, you know, for the majority of the world, uh, what you're going to see are applications with AI as cornerstone to how the application functions, but they're not going to be true AI companies. Um, it's just very clear that the scale of these foundational models, the scale of investment um, that's there makes it really, really difficult for smaller businesses to compete. And it also enables smaller businesses to stand on their shoulders and do amazing things that candidly, even 12 months ago, they wouldn't have been able to accomplish. Right. Yeah, per that's perfectly said. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like with AI, there's maybe equal parts excitement and fear. I think you've kind of covered, for example, in, in the legal tech sector, why there should be excitement because effectively you're enabling small companies to now all of a sudden have the scale of big companies and big companies to have the speed uh, of small companies. Um, right. On the fear side, so, okay, let's say I'm a lawyer listening to this podcast. And I'm like, okay, is this guy about to cost me my job? Are you right. about to put a bunch of lawyers out of business? Right. Uh, uh, I think, uh, am I about to put lawyers out of business? No, I'm not about to put lawyers out of business. But, you know, uh, the legal profession has gone through many evolutions. Um, 20 years ago, uh, the first business I built, every law firm managed discovery for big clients, and they did that from end to end. And at the end of the day, that's not the way it works anymore. Big companies contract with both a law firm, but also discovery providers, and they sort of make this three-legged, they make this three-legged stool. Things are different. The law firms are more profitable than ever today. The law firms are still, you know, giant, giant uh, operations. And I think, you know, there is an evolutionary process here, and that evolution is actually quite, you know, accelerated in the context of generative AI. Um, I don't think it's about putting lawyers out of business. I think it is definitely about transforming the way lawyers get things done. I want to talk about fear in two contexts, though, Bradley. One is, is the fear of displacement and how do we all deal with that? You know, what we're doing today isn't going to get done the same way it got done yesterday. There is that displacement that's been there across industries, you know, whether it's technology, offshoring, you know, demand for a different product set, whatever it is. Those things are all very natural, sort of the fear of displacement and fear of change. That's one piece of it. The second is, is the fear of, you know, can the AI be relied upon, right? And that's a separate issue. And by the way, I was just reading uh, one of the largest insurers for global law firms, you know, has put in place a standard or at least has recommended a standard that says we don't want our, you know, our law firms using generative AI right now. That's something that I read about literally this morning before we got on the call. And you just look at it and you say, well, how realistic is that? Because Microsoft is putting out Copilot and every single lawyer who's using Microsoft Word is now gonna have generative AI at their fingertips, right? 
So how are we going to deal with this? And is that fear of the use of AI irrational? Yeah, right? I mean, look, to a certain extent, you would think, you know, we even have legal malpractice insurance at, at Touch Strategies, and we're not lawyers. Most of the mistakes that occur where people have to then use that insurance isn't because they knowingly chose to do something bad. It's because they overlook something. They, they're just moving too fast, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that, like, AI is sort of the greatest way to protect legal insurers from having yeah. to pay out a lot of claims. Yeah. So unequivocally, and I, gosh, I could go back through case after case where, you know, where humans, for example, miss or, missed or misidentified privilege information or inadvertently produced information they shouldn't have, et cetera. And the, the right answer, it's a, you know, it's an axiom, it's obvious, but clearly the right answer is human plus technology. You know, I was speaking last week in London about this sort of 20 years of, you know, 20 observations from 20 years of AI. And, and Bradley, one of the things that stood out from this is like, hey, would anyone in the room just blindly trust, you know, the AI to go do X? And the answer was, well, some people actually said yes. They're like, hey, you, you really ought to think, think through whether that's the right answer. But the second piece of it, I was like, does anyone think that the right answer is just to go put the human at it and ignore what AI can bring to the table or technology in general should bring to the table? And the answer is, is clearly, clearly put the AI with the technology, put a wrapper and a process around it, and you will get better outcomes unequivocally. So let's say I'm the senior partner or chair, whatever title they use at a mega law firm, SCAD and Kirkland, whatever it is. And I come to you and say, yep. okay, Jim, how should I be thinking about AI so that it is both something tool that I can take the most advantage of and so that it isn't disruptive in a way that ultimately costs us money? Yeah. I mean, the first piece of it, and by the way, there was a great study. It came out, uh, it came out uh, about 10 days ago that I recommend that everyone go take a look at particularly in the professional services context, Harvard Business Review came out with a study and they did it with BCG. And in the BCG study, they basically, they, I think there were about 800 professionals that they trained how to use chat GPT in some way and started folding it into their practice. The, the too long do not read version of this is that productivity went up, uh, through not only did productivity go up, but completion and quality went up. Um, and one of the most uh, one of the most interesting things was that middle level performers with the introduction of AI performed at nearly the same level as the most outstanding performers. So the impact of AI on the most impact uh, on the most outstanding performers was there, but it was less impactful than it was on middle-level performers who were all of a sudden brought into the same tier. It's absolutely positively you know, remarkable and very much a confirmation of, hey, human plus AI goes together very well. The flip side to this was that they did have a downside in performance, Bradley, that was very interesting. And this is the piece that I think the Skadden or K&E you know, managing partner ought to take into account is, here's the goodness, here's dem demonstrable evidence that you put your professionals in touch with and teach them how to use the AI and you're going to get better results. The flip side was if you don't train them and you don't have oversight of how they're using it, they also saw 
that there were professionals within BCG who were using the AI to do things that candidly they shouldn't have been doing. It just wasn't prepared to do that. In those circumstances, they had quality dips, right? And so it was a statement about, wait a second, if we train them how to use it, if we identify the use cases, productivity increases there, as well as the people just like their jobs better, right? Which is pretty cool. The downside is if you don't lean into it, you don't oversee it and they use it, then you know you may be dealing with the consequences of poor, of, of poor quality where they just didn't know that what they were doing, the AI wasn't really positioned well to do. Give me a few tangible examples of, you know, if you're either a major health organization or, or a company or whatever it is, and you're using TCN, what are they specifically doing that is saving them so much time? Yeah. I mean, the first thing, we were just on a phone call with, with a, a client in the healthcare and life sciences uh, sec- sector. So one of the first things that they do is, is this client um, receives large volumes of clinical trial agreements, but also clinical research protocols, which are very, very complicated. And one of the things that they're using TCN to do is to take an agreement that they've never seen before, take a protocol that they've never seen before, and to compare that protocol or compare that agreement to their standards. And this happens literally in seconds. I can take something I've never seen before. I have my standards over here. I compare the two and I quickly get a readout that says, this is how this agreement or this is how this protocol aligns with my standards. Not only can we take that information and compare it to their standards, but we can also start preparing that output. Remember data from the first draft, we've converted the agreement into data and now the operational data that they need for SAP, Oracle, Salesforce, whatever it is, we've taken that data and we put it in a place where they can see how it's gonna feed into their their operation. That's a great, great use case for TCN. And it's just something that's really, really transformational for them. The second piece of the use case is, is what happens if if I'm on the other side of the equation and I'm sending out large volumes of agreements that are based on, you know, that are based on my standards? When that happens, the flip side of that is, is I can send out the agreements on the contract network. We can make that pretty efficient. But when that agreement comes back, we call that a boomerang moment. The agreement comes back. We can then use the AI to say, are the changes that the counterpart made consistent with my standards? How do they compare to how I've negotiated agreements in the past? And by the way, if the, if the feedback that came back, if the revised draft matches up with things that I've agreed to in the past, then we can just say, hey, this all looks consistent with what you've done before. Do you want to accept it? Really, really changing the game for them, making it much easier for them to get through their revisions. Also then downstream, Bradley, I can go on and on. Downstream, how do we then give them a summary at the end of the month that says, you issued 120 agreements this month, all off the same template. What were the most negotiated topics? And specifically, what can we recommend to you to change around your agreement to shorten your negotiation time cycles? A lot, a lot of possibilities there that we're really excited, you know, as we embark on this journey. Oh, it's a, you know, it's a, first of all, uh, it is a big challenge um, where, 
you know, where everyone is introducing AI. And I got to tell you, like, it's almost scary to me as someone who's been doing this for 20 years. I can't tell you how many application providers that we're seeing out there who are telling the story of, oh, use our use our platform and you'll generate a draft agreement or use our agreement, use our platform. And maybe you don't have to use attorneys. We never take that position. Absolutely, positively not. We specifically incorporate, you know, into our platform. First of all, the AI is in beta state and that's appropriate, right? That's where OpenAI is. That's where Anthropic is. The, the AI is in beta state. We specifically state anything that's done here, you need, to, you need to do under the supervision of a qualified professional. So we put in those safeguards that say, this is the process. The last piece of it is, is that we're really not focused on consumers, right? We are focused on businesses, which uh, businesses have a different degree of responsibility uh, in terms of their professionalism and what they what they do. So when we undertake our work, you know, we have an expectation and we clearly explicitly state it in the product in multiple different stages. This is an area where you have a responsibility to have this this output or this work, you know, reviewed and it should be undertaken by a qualified professional. So for the regulators who listen to this podcast, I, I bet they're struggling in the sense that they see that this is this massive revolution. They, they don't want to sort of get caught without dealing with it. And yet at the same time, it's so new and so nebulous in so many ways. It's really hard to regulate something that is still just being formed and in as many ways still conceptual. What's your advice to them? So I think that there are two pieces to the regulatory framework that and, and regulators in general. One is regulators who have an oversight responsibility. The second is, is regulators as consumers. And we'll go get to that in a second. We were talking about fintech. You know, what does the OTC want in terms of a reporting framework, right? What does, you know, we, you know, we all talked about transparency for private equity funds, right? What do regulators want to see there? So I want to talk about the regulatory framework in both contexts, mm -hmm. right? Sure. One is, is how do we oversee this? It is a massive challenge, I think, for regulatory bodies. And particularly, you know, you see, you know, you see the assembly of, you know, of AI experts appearing before Congress, Congress trying to grapple with and, and undertake these terms. Um, the, I mean, one piece of it for regulators is, is to, I would, just as I encourage everyone, actually use the products actually get in and use the products. Don't speak about this hypothetically. Don't make decisions hypothetically. Find ways to explore the products in a very business-oriented fashion to see what they do and don't do. And also the second piece of it is, is educate yourself beyond using them. Educate yourself um, with industry resources. Um, that would be sort of the first piece of it. The second piece of it is, is uh, I would just say, um, uh, my perspective is, is the genie is out of the bottle on this one. Like it happened. It happened to us all. The genie is out of the bottle. And now, you know, the idea that somehow we're going to take generative AI and large language models back is not realistic. And if we do take them back, what's going to happen in other, you know, in other parts of the globe? Or are they going to take them back as well? And if they don't take them back, where are we going to be from a competitive perspective? I think, the, the piece that's out there 
um, for regulators then is to say, LLMs, generative AI are here, period. They are going to be used on a, they are going to be used on every single product, Microsoft Word, Gmail, your Adobe Photoshop. It doesn't matter, Bradley, they're here, they're happening. And so regulators need to understand that and in that context decide who deserves the safeguards. Do we look at consumers first? Do we look at, uh, do we look at uh, ethical considerations for businesses, et cetera? And from my perspective, it's all about getting comfortable with it, using it, understanding it firsthand, educating yourself uh, further beyond what you can touch and feel, understanding the global impact in terms of where these product, where these foundational models are being incorporated and being pragmatic to say, they're here, you're not gonna put it back in. And from that, then prioritizing what is most important that we protect? Is it consumers? Is it copyright, et cetera? Perfect. Hey, Jim, how do people follow you? How do they hire TCN? How do they get in touch? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I'm on LinkedIn, Jim Wagner. Uh, if you put in Jim Wagner, the contract network, you'll definitely find me there. Our website is thecontractnetwork.com. And if you want to get in touch, just uh, go to our site. There's an early access uh, registration, or you can send a request to info at thecontractnetwork.com. Perfect. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.